Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 10, 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." I mean, in his uh, book on Paradise Drive, the author David Brooke describes what he calls the professionalization of children. And he writes uh, these words From the earliest years, an alliance of parents and schools creates a pressure cooker of competition designed to produce students who excel in everything. There'll be glorious exceptions to that, of course. Teachers and parents who aren't complicit in creating that kind of high-achieving pressure environment. As I look back to my childhood, I'm extremely grateful that my parents never gave me the impression that I would only be loved if I excelled. Yet I was still left with a feeling that I needed to achieve in order to have a successful and happy life. And I know I wasn't the only one. Indeed, uh, doesn't that quote make the point that I'm not the only one? Here in the West, that, that message is sometimes... Uh, boldly stated at other times quite subliminal Uh, but one way or another over the years we're left believing that to be happy in life we need to be someone to prove ourselves by academic success by reaching the top in our career or excelling in music or sport or whatever now look when that's been driven into you from an early age when that way of thinking has formed who you are when it is so deeply embedded in your psyche and taken root in your heart and I want to suggest it is in most of us if not in all of us well then it is very difficult to change the way we live 
And yet as followers of Jesus Christ, as members of the kingdom of heaven, we simply must live a different way. Because that kind of striving for success and achievement is very far from what it means to be a child of God. And we see that in our Bible passage today. This morning as we, as we look at Mark chapter 10, we meet two very ambitious blokes. Men who may well have had parents and teachers impressing upon them that they should excel in everything. Their names are James and John. And they are real opportunists. They're not afraid to push themselves forward. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Blimey. I reckon if I approached anyone like that, they'd be a bit taken aback. And if I said that to someone in authority over me, they really would be shocked by my inappropriate audacity. If I said to my dad when I was growing up, Dad, I want you to do for me whatever I ask, he'd have said to me, and I want you to go to your room right now and think about what you just said to me. And if when I was working in the newspaper industry, I'd have said to my boss, Bob, that was his name, Bob Priddle, Bob, I want you to do for me whatever you ask, he'd have said to me, and I want you to go to Human Resources, and by the time you get there, they'll have your P45 ready to collect. But the point is, you simply don't speak to anyone the way these disciples spoke to Jesus. And you certainly don't speak to those in authority over you. But here are James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, asking Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. It's shocking enough to speak anyone like that. But through this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. That phrase comes twice in our passage this morning at the beginning and at the end. You'll see it in verse 33. You'll see it again at verse 45. We considered what this phrase meant a few weeks back. The Son of Man was a title used in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And when the Son of Man walked onto the stage in Daniel chapter 7, God the Father gave this Son of Man all authority and glory and sovereign power over all people and all nations in the entire world. The Son of Man, then, is the being with the highest authority in the cosmos, considerably more powerful than the President of the United States or the Chairman of the People's Republic of China or the President of the European Parliament. Indeed, the Son of Man is more powerful than all of them put together. And so what a thing for the disciples to ask Jesus, the Son of Man, verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's all wrong. And yet Jesus' response is so remarkably gracious and patient, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that quite something? Jesus doesn't send them packing. He doesn't bark at them and put them in their place. No, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. James and John were following Jesus because they thought he was the special one. Not a previous incarnation of Jose Mourinho, you'll understand, but but, um, the special one promised in the Bible, God's king appointed to lead God's people. And so these disciples assumed that Jesus would be crowned king one day. And to be fair to them, they were right. You'll recall, particularly if you were here at the beginning of January, that right at the beginning of chapter 9, James and John, along with the third disciple, Peter, had been taken up a mountain and been shown Jesus' glory as he was transfigured, transformed. So they were right. Jesus was going to have a glorious and exalted position in the universe. That much they'd got right. But they also had an awful lot wrong. They thought this gave them an opportunity to prosper. James and John are ambitious men. 
Maybe all their lives, perhaps from the first days they could remember, their parents and teachers created a pressure cooker of competition so that they would achieve the best they could. And so here they are, wanting to excel, wanting to make the most of themselves, grabbing a career opportunity by the horns. They're putting their own names forward for the top jobs in Jesus' government. Jesus, when you're the president, when you're in your glory, we'd like you to make one of us prime minister and the other chancellor of the exchequer. How does that sound to you, Jesus? Can you hear what they're saying? We want promotion. We want prestige and power. We want positions that make us somebodies. And who knows, perhaps they're imagining all the benefits that come from that kind of exalted place. A comfortable life of first-class travel and gourmet food and palatial surroundings and a salary would make them very comfortable. Thank you very much. Now look, I hope uh, as we look at James and Norton, we feel at least a little embarrassed for them. But before we write them off as brash, ambitious bounty hunters, we do well to look at ourselves If Jesus said to you and me, what do you want me to do for you? We might ask for something quite similar. In a group this side, there'll be a whole range of things we'd ask for. I don't mind telling you that if Jesus asked me what he could do for me right now, I'd ask him to bring my daughter out of South Korea and back home safe and sound away from the coronavirus outbreak that is there at the moment. You'll have your own desires too. You know, They could be bound up with love, love in a partner or material comfort or relief from the stress and worry of health problems or family concerns or financial demands. But maybe like James and John... If we were asked what we want from Jesus, it would be a promotion, prestige, a position of power. That would come somewhere, I suggest, down the list, quite high up the list. Now, it's that desire for success and status and and all the seductive accompaniments that come with it that we'll stay with this morning because it's at the heart of the passage and it's so often at the heart of our desires too. Partly because we've had it drilled into us from the earliest age, but also because this is part of our fallen nature. We want to push ourselves up, make something of ourselves, be recognized, be successful. We've been conditioned to want to excel. And while on the one hand, we might want to argue that there's there's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself, as we address this in the context of everything else going on in this passage, we'll see how impossible it is to have the ambition that James and John had and live as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Look back with me to verse 32. Jesus, along with James and John and the other disciples and a, a number of other, other people on the way, were, verse 32, on their way up to Jerusalem. Now, by now... Those of us who've read Mark's gospel up to this point should know what that means. Jesus is on his way to his death. Jesus has already taught the disciples back in chapter 8, verse 31, do you remember? Also chapter 9, verse 31, he said virtually the same things in both those those verses, that he, the Son of Man, must suffer and die at the hands of men. And so, verse 32, there's Jesus leading the way, striding out purposefully on his way to the cross, Jesus is walking right into the hands of his enemies and he's going to die. And he needs to teach the disciples again that that's what's going to happen because they still haven't fully got it. Look at the end of verse 32. Virtually the same things as we saw in 8.31 and 9.31, but a bit more detail now. Verse 32. Again, he took the 12 aside because they hadn't got it and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem 
And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Now, do you see how this puts James and John's request into a very different context? It is not a great request at the best of times, but here is Jesus heading for his death and the disciples are looking for promotion. They wanted a place of honor, verse 37. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, here's the point to grasp. The disciples, as I've already said, have rightly understood that Jesus is going to come in glory. He gave them a glimpse of that glory, as I've already said, at the Mount of Transfiguration. They've got that much right, but they have completely misunderstood the route to glory. For Jesus, and indeed for everyone who follows him, glory comes only through suffering. So Jesus said to them, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? The route to glory is through a cup of suffering. Glory comes through a baptism. It comes through being immersed in death and suffering. You have to go through suffering before you get to glory. Indeed, suffering is the glory way. Indeed, uh, Jesus is gloriously seen as he hangs on a cross. And so Jesus says to them, can you do that? Can you suffer by drinking the cup of suffering and being baptized, immersed in suffering? And they answered, verse 39, yes, we can. It is a remarkably bold and overconfident response. It's full of pride, exactly what you'd expect from a couple of guys who had the temerity to push themselves forward and ask for promotion. They've applied for the top jobs, and here's the first interview question, and their overconfident answer shows they don't have a clue what the job entails. That said, once again, Jesus is very gracious with them. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. They are going to suffer. They're going to suffer similarly as Jesus suffered. Not exactly in the same way that Jesus suffered. Not by dying a substitutionary atoning death for the sins of the world. Only Jesus can do that. But they would suffer. Once Jesus had died for them, once they'd benefited from Jesus serving them in that way, and once they'd been changed from being ambitious glory hunters, then they would suffer and put others first. But before that would happen, they have much to learn about what lies at the core of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, as indeed do all Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 41. When the ten, the other disciples, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, I love this. The other disciples were furious when they heard that James and John had asked for the top jobs. They were really naffed off. Just picture the scene. As we've already seen back in verse 32, Jesus and the disciples were on their road to Jerusalem. And the detail of verse 32 tells us that Jesus was leading the way. He was ahead of the group. Now, in your mind's eye, imagine them then walking ahead. There's Jesus walking ahead with the disciples, all 12 of them in a group behind. And then, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him. Can you picture it? Jesus ahead uh, of the group. James and John picking up the pace to catch up with Jesus, leaving the other 10 disciples in a group behind him and out of earshot. And then James and John said to Jesus, verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
And verse 41, when the other ten disciples hear about this, they are indignant with James and John. Not because they felt the inappropriate of the request, but because James and John got there first. And in that moment, we see the problem with wanting to be at the top. When we push ourselves forward and upward, when we want to get on and get up in the world, it usually means pushing others down. It doesn't always have to be the case, but usually my getting up results in someone else being pushed down. Dawn Steele, one of the first women to run a major Hollywood film studio, was very honest about her ambitious ruthlessness. She said this, I was so busy climbing up this ladder, staying above the water, if there was only room for one woman in a room, I wanted to be her. And there's the problem. We can't all be at the top. And if we are, it means someone else is pushed out. And even when we settle for not being right at the top, we certainly don't want to be at the bottom of the pile. Ron White, the American comedian and actor, understood that when he said these words, I've never been one to look up the ladder. I've always looked down the ladder. As long as there's one guy down there, I'm fine. You see what's going on? I may not want to be at the top of the tree, I just don't want to be at the bottom. However you look at it, wanting to be up, by definition, means someone else must be lower down than me. Being successful, by definition, means others are less successful than me. That is one reason why self-promotion is such a problem. So when the other disciples discovered what was going on, they were none too happy about it, verse 41. They were indignant. I've already said they weren't morally outraged by James and John grasp for power. They were annoyed because James and John got there first, potentially leaving the rest of them to be pen-pushing civil servants or making the tea. And so in verse 42, Jesus kind of rounded them all up and uh, as my old dad would have said, he banged their heads together. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, he says. That's not how it is in my kingdom, says Jesus. And when we think about it, we can see why. If pushing ourselves forward puts others down, if my getting to the top of the tree means others are at the bottom, then personal advancement ruins relationships. Certainly ruined this group, at least for this time. That is so often the case. The things we desperately crave so often destroy relationships. Like you all have experienced it in your workplace, I imagine. I certainly did when I was in the newspaper industry, people putting the boot in so that colleagues don't get the promotion they so desperately want. And then, of course, when somebody is promoted, there's all this jealousy around because somebody's been promoted above you. See, grasping for anything, power, prestige, a position in life, grasping for anything ruins relationships. And that's the, the problem with the kind of ambition we see in the world around us. Again, verse 42, you know the Gentiles who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's the world's way. You get in a position of power and authority and you begin to lord it over others. Either because in your pride you think you have the right to dictate to others, you know, I've made it to the top, therefore I'm greater than you, therefore I have the, the right to order you around. See, pride makes you lord it over others. Seems, you seem to have the right to do that. But then, 
Insecurity makes you lord it over others too. See, being at the top is a very precarious position. Balancing at the top of the ladder, especially when others are trying to climb the ladder, they want to replace you. So in your security, you have to put people down, squash them so that you can stay at the top. Tim Keller explains this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says that those in power feel very anxious and fearful. He writes these words. Those in power know that they are the object of jealousy and stand in the crosshairs of their competitors. The higher a person climbs, the greater the possibility of a terrible fall, for there is so much to lose. See, that fear, that insecurity sees people lording it over others, keeping them down, pushing them down if necessary. That, says Jesus, is how the world works. Again, verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over those and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Four powerful words for us to take home today. Not so with you, verse 43. Instead... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That is the way of Jesus' kingdom. And it is a beautiful way to live. First, because it's good for others. Because if I'm not pushing myself up, I don't need to push you down. If I'm not fearful of losing my position because I'm not living for an exalted position, then I'm not going to see you as a threat. Living this way is good for others, and second, it's good for us. You see, gone is the striving, the desperate need to be someone. Gone is the fear that I need to hang on to my place in the pecking order. In Vanity Fair magazine, pop legend Madonna describes what motivates her in life. She says these words, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. That is a horrible way to live. But in the kingdom of God, that need to prove that you are someone disappears. You are gloriously loved by God. And hey, you will inherit everything in his kingdom one day. You will be richer than you can ever imagine one day. Changes everything to know that. It means I don't have to be striving all the time. It means I can live my life for others and serving others, verse 43, being a slave to others. It's a terrific way to live. So for those of you in positions of authority and responsibility in your workplace, this can liberate you to be be quite different with those under you. You don't need to lord it over those in your employment. What a powerful evangelistic witness you can be at work when you model this kind of leadership, servant leadership, It is so different from the world. And how powerful it is when you're free from that that constant striving, which is the way that many people live. They are driven. It's so exhausting. Of course, you can still look for promotion, but you don't have to put others down when they're in the running for the same job because promotion isn't everything to you anymore. 
Now look, we can't think about this without reflecting on the sad situation in, in British evangelicalism today. In recent months, prominent church leaders have been exposed as those who lorded over those in the congregation. Desperately, people have been terribly hurt by the abuse of power in the church. That is a dreadful thing. Church leaders must be servants, slaves, here to serve others, certainly not to lord it over others. I've told you before about a series of prayers that I, I regularly turn to in my daily prayer times. Here are some of them. I pray this. Change me so that I do ministry for your glory and the benefit of others and not to meet my own needs. Help me to stop comparing myself with others, either feeling jealous or superior. Take from me the desire to be noticed or praised by others and help me instead to desire your love, your affirmation, your approval and your acceptance. Help me to honour and love others in ministry and not compete with them. Look, look, can you see what a beautiful approach to life and community Jesus lays out for us here? But even as we see the beauty of it, we have to acknowledge that this is so hard to live because all of our lives from very early on, the parent-teacher alliance have marinated us in the pressure cooker of competition and it's completely soaked into us. We've been conditioned to think that to be someone, we have to get up and get on. But that is so destructive to everyone. It destroys those we put down and it screws us up as we have to work so hard to protect this exalted position. But I guess only when we see how horrible it is will we begin to see how beautiful the way of the kingdom of God really is. Greatness in God's kingdom is achieved as we go down, as we serve. When we act like slaves, we become first, says Jesus in verse 44. And you know, the most beautiful thing of all in all of this is that our God has perfectly lived this. Verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is again, the Son of Man, the one with total authority and power in the entire universe, did not come to be served, but to serve. How astonishing is that? How different is our God from all the other so-called gods in the universe? This is what distinguishes, or at least this is one thing that distinguishes Jesus Christ and Christianity from all the religions of the world. It's 28 years ago now that Caroline and I went um, on our honeymoon to New Zealand, because uh, that's where Caroline's from. On the way, we stopped over in Singapore and had a tour of the city. The city tour took us to a Buddhist temple. I'll never forget what I saw that day. At that time, I'd never been to a a temple before. There were many different statues of many different gods and I noticed fear on the faces of the worshippers as they took their gifts to the gods. Everything in the temple was about people serving their gods, giving gifts to the gods, taking fruit and nuts and berries, ordinary people trying to do enough to please the gods, to appease them. Well, of course, if you're God, you get people to run after you, to serve you. You know, if I was God, I'd certainly get you lot to run around after me. But do you see, that's not how it is with Jesus Christ. Verse 45, this, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These must be some of the most astonishing words in the Bible. 
the one true God, Jesus Christ, came to serve you and me. But then you see, it has to be that way. Because to a, a greater or lesser extent, like James and John, we have tried to push ourselves up, and in the process, we will have pushed others down. We have tried to exalt ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, and in doing that, to a greater or lesser extent, we have tried to take the place of God. And so we all need Jesus to serve us by paying the ransom price for our sin. And that is what we'll remember as we take bread and wine later on in our service. Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us for this pushing ourselves forward and trying to make a name for ourselves. But listen, once we've allowed Jesus to serve us like that, it changes us. I'll let Tim Keller have the last word. He says, If at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to win influence in society is through service rather than power and control. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are many things that we could pray in response to this Bible passage. But perhaps most of all, we want to praise you and glorify you, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son, the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, not coming to be served, but to serve. What a God you are. We thank you that you're like that. And then we pray that having seen what you're like and having been served by you, by Jesus' death on the cross, we pray, please, that we might be those who are freed from wanting to try and make ourselves somebody because we know we are somebody in your sight. Freed from all that striving, freed from pushing people down, no longer lording it over others, but please, more and more being those who are servants and slaves of others to your praise and glory. Amen.